Our text is uh, Ecclesiastes, and it will be for the summer. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, and you can find it in the Pew Bible, uh, the Black Pew Bible in front of you on page 553. It was C.S. Lewis in his famous work, Mere Christianity, who wrote this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. So he highlights, in other words, there's a reason that children have hunger because there's such a thing as food. There's a reason that ducklings desire to swim and to meet that there is water. There's a reason that people desire intimacy and God provided sex. He goes on to say, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, which he is saying is is heaven and is God ultimately. But then we walk in, we live in this world, and we say, what is wrong with the world? This is not a Christian question. This is a question that everyone at different seasons, times, and turns says, what is wrong with the world? The short answer is, in Genesis 3, we know that there has been a curse because of our disobedience in our parents in the garden, we have rebelled against God, his perfect will, his desire for us to walk in light. And now we stumble in darkness and in toil. There's all kinds of things associated with that. Cornelius Plantinga, who wrote a book on sin, that rebellion in the garden, it's called, the title of the book is, The World is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. In that book, he writes, We want to be reunited with a happy time or a lovely place or a good friend. We keep wanting to, quote, get back or get in. What's remarkable is that these longings are unfulfillable. We may want a good career or a family or a particular kind of life, and these things may come to us. But if so, they will not fill all of our niches because we want more than these things can give, even if we fall Deeply in love and marry another human being, we discover that our spiritual and sexual oneness isn't final. It's wonderful, but it is not final. Things like contentment, let's state the obvious, if we're honest, are altogether elusive. Poof. You think you're content, you think you have everything that you want, poof, it's gone. And we experience, even with the abundance of opportunities and resources, a remarkable discontent, amongst other problems. I was reflecting on this in the past week. How is it that we live in a time and a place where entertainment is constantly available, and yet we are bored? How is that? We are living in a world where we're more interconnected and able to communicate with people, with with technology, just constantly. And yet, especially now at the close of a pandemic, we're we're feeling isolated. There are people that are experiencing deep, (laughs) tragic loneliness. We live in a culture that talks a ton about inclusion 
and love and justice. And yet we villainize people just because they have a different point of view. We even go to the extent of violence. I think you get what I'm referring to. That question, what is wrong with the world? What's, there's so many things that are unjust and confusing. What's wrong, with, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? You can tell me later, but be sure to put some encouragement with it. Right, Dale? Thank you. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Well, it's the same thing. The same thing, you know, so much has changed in the world and yet nothing has changed. Nothing. So we open up a a book that is 3,000 years old. Hard to believe. And it speaks as if it was written yesterday. 3,000 years ago, Ecclesiastes interstage left, brings some things into focus Ecclesiastes says and reminds us dozens of times, there is nothing new under the sun. What are the main themes of Ecclesiastes? Today's kind of an introduction to Ecclesiastes. What are the main themes? Don't write these down. Let me give you a quick summary of Ecclesiastes. Time is marching on really fast. We have no control over life, which at times seems very random and hard, and we all die. Oh, and you'll be forgotten too. Isn't that exciting? Didn't that just cheer you up? This is so refreshing to hear the message of Ecclesiastes. This book, Ecclesiastes, is rather enigmatic. It It is puzzling. But perhaps with all of its brutal honesty about life, it will give us some wisdom That we desperately need. Wisdom, by the way, I define as the skill to navigate life well. Particularly and especially life in a fallen, broken world which we live. Time and again, Proverbs and the book of Psalms both say this phrase. The beginning of wisdom is what? As much as I appreciate you guys, it's not graduation from high school. It's not even related to age. It's not related to diplomas and degrees and and experiences. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let me invite you to stand as we read just some opening verses here. And then we're going to ask for that divine assistance that we really need. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. Hear this. This is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
What has been is always what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Lord, we do stand uh, in fear. Not, not, not anxiety, not, not trembling, but in, in awe and in reverence and in honor of you, our holy maker. We, we pray with gratitude and yet dependence, we ask for your help, that you might give us right now the comfort and the counsel by your spirit that we need to understand and apply this text to our confusing times and lives. We pray in Jesus for his sake. Amen. Although throughout, uh, we will explore all of Ecclesiastes in one sense. I just want to give you a heads up that this sermon in, in, in particular, but also some of the sermons this summer, won't be in a typical expositional fashion, which we typically work through uh, passages of Scripture in their entirety and whole and context. There will be times that I have to kind of move in and out of different themes and touch upon larger portions instead of taking... You'll thank me later, okay? <laughs> you, you, you go read for yourself. If, if anyone here has read Ecclesiastes, I know that some of you have, you, you understand. And in fact, let me go ahead and give you the homework ahead of time. This is already going to sound like a lecture today, but just bear with me. But here's your assignment. Homework is go sit down in one reading, carve out the time. You've got it, believe it or not. Go read the entire book of Ecclesiastes in one sitting. Should take about half an hour. Okay? There's your homework. For today, by way of introduction, here are listed there in the order of service three uh, headings. Three questions. Basic questions for Ecclesiastes, first of all. Second, hard questions for life. And then lastly, some ultimate questions for us. Here, here are the four basic questions that I want us to a look at briefly concerning this book of Ecclesiastes. What type of literature is this or genre? The second is, who's the author? Third is, what is the structure? And last, what is the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes? What type of, of literature is this? This is a, a, a portion of, of the genre of, of the biblical, uh, of biblical wisdom literature, we call it. Wisdom literature are the five uh, poetic books, if you just open straight open to the middle of the Bible, that you find yourself. One of the reasons that people find themselves in Psalms is because that's where you just end up when you open halfway through. Another reason is that we do like, we do tend to resonate with wisdom literature because unlike the prophets or the historical books, you know, we're not locating ourselves uh, in Israel's, the details of Israel's history, the people of God. We are easily identifying with some personal examples, some existential struggles and emotions that we can easily uh, correlate with our own life. To re remind you, those five poetic books are Job, 
Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Job takes up the question. I'm guessing you already know this. He takes up the, 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 the problem of suffering. And he asks the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Psalms takes up prayer and worship and, and a whole variety of human emotion. And it asks the question, how do I approach God? Proverbs deals with the problem of human conduct. And it answers, seeks to answer the question, how shall I live? Song of Solomon or Song of Songs takes up the matter of love and, and intimacy and says, how shall I love? Ecclesiastes takes up the problem of the meaning of life and seeks to answer the question for us, why are we here? We need insight into navigating life. Now, unlike the didactic wisdom of Proverbs, which is a collection of sayings that are in some ways rather black and white at various turns and times, unlike that, where it's describing life and God and human nature. Ecclesiastes is not typically a didactic wisdom. It's what some would refer to as a reflective wisdom. It's, it's not looking at, it's taking the general rules and it's looking at some of the problems, some of the exceptions, some of the deeper things that surround living. It reflects on the meaning of wisdom and that especially in the face of suffering and disappointment, Right? We ask deeper questions when we are face-to-face with different forms of injustice in life. Let me give you an example, okay? Ecclesiastes 7, 14 and 15. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Katie, sound like a good VBS memory verse? Didn't think so. There are some sayings in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, the Beatles sang about it. There's some winsome, wonderful things. But there is some stuff that is altogether puzzling, and like I said earlier, enigmatic. Conundrums of injustice, like the fact that this is what happens in the world. Wisdom literature uses proverbs and sayings, riddles and metaphors, questions, even satire. And, and even, even like, like here with Ecclesiastes, some of these deep troubling questions. So it's wisdom literature. Who's the author? Short answer is, we don't know. When you read the sober and at times depressing tones in Ecclesiastes, some have suggested that Ecclesiastes was written by a philosophy major and that on a Monday morning when he was really pessimistic. <laughs> He's like the, the Bob Dylan, you know, of our own, you know, of, of their own time 3,000 years ago. We don't know for certain who wrote it. it we don't know why it would be anonymous, but... Here in verse 1, it says the words of the, quote, preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher there in the original language in Hebrew is kohelet, which can be translated the preacher or the teacher, uh, the sage or the pundit. 
Kohelet. That's actually how we get our name. The, the word Kohelet is, means the one uh, who calls or assembles people together. The Greek translation of Kohelet, the Hebrew word, is Ecclesiastes. I'll, I'll just give you the, the rendering, which is another, you know, familiar to the word and is connected to the word Ecclesia, which is the church, the ones who are called together. So here is someone, the preacher is the one who has assembled together people to learn and to impart wisdom. Although we don't know for certain, and we don't know why he chose to be anonymous, because other books like Proverbs clearly spell out that it was Solomon. Many, down through the ages, both in the Jewish and Christian tradition, believe that Solomon wrote this book. He does say that he's the son of David. That could mean quite a few people in that lineage. And even those who ruled in the line of David, as verse 1 says. But as you go throughout the book, Ecclesiastes, you see that he refers to the fact that he had a wisdom that surpassed all others. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 16 says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He goes on to describe all of these various building activities that went on. He talks about wealth, having a large harem and many, many servants at his hand. He talks about uh, in chapter two, that great wealth that surpassed again, also those who had preceded him. And if you go and you, you read first Kings or what we will read this fall in second Samuel, you'll say, this sounds a lot like Solomon. I think that's as good of a Speculative guess as any. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because we know that this, it reads, if you read Ecclesiastes, it reads in some ways like a personal diary or journal that's been written. But we know the ultimate source of it, and this is what's most important. And the writer, Coelette, says at the very close in chapter 12, that it was, chapter 12, verse 11, given by one shepherd. It was the Lord God who gave him this. So for us, this is not a matter of someone just collecting a bunch of life experiences. This is a matter of revelation. This is what God wanted us to see and hear and appreciate. Even in its puzzling nature, even if if it's mysterious. Third question. Among these basic questions for Ecclesiastes, what is the structure of this book? Good luck with that. Um, I, I read through at least seven different commentaries and there's dozens more and every one of them has, you know, tons of different explanations on how to outline the book and structure. We do know that at the very beginning in the prologue, there's a prologue and then there's a poem about time and then it closes and rounds out with an epilogue and a poem that points to death. And then everything in between is in essence an exploring of him looking for meaning, significance, and purpose concerning this mysterious life in a fallen world. Ultimately, moving on, what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? Some have suggested that, and it's as good a suggestion as any, that it was Solomon in his old age after which he had repented and realized the folly of his ways was humble. There is, a, there is a repentant, humble tone at different times when you read it. It's almost as if the writer is reflecting on 
what it was like trying with all of those resources, which indeed Solomon had at his disposal, where he couldn't, after searching all of those and trying all those, couldn't find meaning, whether it was wine or women or wealth or work, that he couldn't find meaning in those things. Which makes sense because there was a, a tragedy about Solomon's life, and that is recorded in 1 Kings 11.9, which said his heart was turned away for a season away from the living God. You might say that the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to impart and to give some wisdom on perspective um, on life under the sun. That's a phrase, by the way, you'll hear that refrain many times over, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, which is referring to a life lived just in this fallen world, not you know, not with God in mind, right? Just as, as, as everyone normally lives life under the sun in their own human experience. But there is a life under God. But we all just experience life, as far as we know it, under the sun. Without reference to God. There's also some practical advice. But the clearest indication as to the purpose of Ecclesiastes is captured in his own words in the last two verses at the very close Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let me read it. The end of the matter. All that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret, whether good or evil. All right. Those are some of the basic questions. There's, there's more. And I, if you want more resources and guidance, I would love to help you appreciate some of the backstory and, and some of the details surrounding this. The hard questions. Here's my second heading. The hard questions for life. Because the, the, themes, the themes in the book are dealing with a lot of those hard questions, as I've already indicated. He starts things out with a really high note. You ready? Verse 2. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Wow. Um. By the way, this is important. This is very key, and I'm going to remind us of this very many, many times as we study it, that that word vain or vanity is used over 30 times in Ecclesiastes. And the original language, the word is hevel. And hevel, which is translated here vain in the ESV, is not the vein that you're thinking of, which is like pride. You know, like you sit in front of a, what do we call it? A vanity mirror, Right. Uh, we're not thinking about uh, the preoccupation with self-vanity as much. And, and by the way, other people have translated this word as in the NIV, which some of you have that translation, which is meaninglessness, which I also think, which I think is a is a faulty uh, rendering and translation. The word literally hevel just means vapor or 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 breath or mist. It's it's trying to communicate that something of the Brevity, that how it's 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 a trans it's a transitory reality that it's things are, are are temporary. It's like smoke. You see it. It you know. It's like a the, the analogy that I thought of this week was like it's like a bubble, right? I remember as a young boy they came out with these uh, these string devices that you would pick up the soap and you would make these gigantic bubbles. And I was always so fascinated with this. It's, it's a noun. Hebel is a noun. It is, it's there. You see it. But as soon as you try to put your hands on it, it's gone.
Some have said that Ecclesiastes is just a book of nihilism, which is the philosophy that life has literally no meaning at all. That's not true. The opening poem reflects on the vanity or the, the, the fleeting nature, right? The fleeting nature of our labors, verse 3, right? All the, the toil that is done under the sun. It reminds us of the cycles of the generations. Let's read that again, verse 4. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Go ahead. In other words, try to build a legacy, right? Try to, try to make a name for yourself and accomplish great things. But that mountain over there and that ocean over there isn't going to care. Because <laughs> you're going to come and go and it's still going to be there. So goes the cycles of nature. You're gone tomorrow, so is the memory of you. The cycles of nature, whether it's verse 6, the wind, or the streams, verse 7, they all continue in this cycle. They come right back all over again. Try to understand all of that. And the writer is saying in verse 8, what is it? All these things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with it. You're going to, if you try to make sense of that, simply under the sun, you will be frustrated and weary. You've, you've probably experienced this. Let's look further down. Verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And a, I really appreciate this phrase because it's really important. It's a chasing after the wind. If you look at a bubble, right? If you, if you, try, to, if you try to grab it, then you only, you only, you know, you, you only hasten its absence and how it's just poof, gone. It's a chasing, it's, it's a grasping after the wind. The biggest question is, most difficult question, is life worth living? Is, is life worth living? At times it doesn't seem that way when we are in the valley of affliction and suffering. True? Most people would say, is life worth living? Well, that depends. It depends on the quantity of life. Like if you, if you reach a certain age, oh, that's a good life. If you die too young, not a good life. Others would be a little more sophisticated and say, no, no, no. It's the quality of life. A, a, a life that has a degree of comfort and ease and, and, and pleasure and good things. That would be a life worth living. But you take those away and we must mercifully just get rid of some of those people because they don't have a quality of life. There are some harsh realities to life. Here's our phrase again, under the sun, which again is life in a fallen world without reference to God. That's not a profound observation, by the way. That there are harsh realities. You don't have to be a philosophical wizard to observe that life is hard and then you die. So what are your options? Well, you could despair or you could deny it. And try to 
Entertain yourself away from that reality. Many people have tried. There is a third way. Naturally, people knowing this have tried to interject meaning into life when they see that it is so fleeting and that it is so temporal and seemingly empty. Let's just survey a few examples of how people try to make sense of that. What's the meaning of life? The materialist says the meaning, the meaning of life is the pursuit and the acquiring and the enjoying of things. Right? That's all there is and let's try to make the best of it. The, the hedonist says life is all about the pursuit of pleasure and comfort. The pragmatist or the existentialist would say the meaning of life is whatever you make of it. Whatever works for you, go on and pursue it and define it as you desire. Back to the question of the purpose of the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes. An Old Testament scholar, Gleason Archer, a theologian who wrote, and I found out this week, he's from Norwell. He was born over 100 years ago in Norwell. And uh, he studied in, in, uh, in Cambridge and lived in Boston. He was, a, he was even a pastor uh, at uh, Park Street Church downtown. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes' purpose is to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview that does not rise above the horizon of man himself. Think about that. So if our horizon is stuck looking at... The writer of Ecclesiastes says, the pursuit of, of wisdom in and of itself, just living life with all the experiences under the sun, doesn't provide any meaning. doesn't provide any, any clarity. I believe that Ecclesiastes would say that a life worth living doesn't depend on the, the quantity or the quality of life, but on the quest of life. The real hevel, the, the fleeting vapor, is when we forget our human purpose and goal. Life is bound to be empty if we put too much stock or hope in stuff or we put too much emphasis on ourself. Our quest. Another popular refrain. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's in the Bible. That's in Ecclesiastes. According to Dave Matthews Band, which I'm going to get to see in concert on Friday night. Father's Day gift to myself. Um, <laughs> Dave Matthews Band says, eat, Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not in the Bible. It says, eat, drink, and be merry, because this is a gift of God to man. Enjoy life, the simple pleasures. Our work, our, our, our conversations and relationships, our, our food, but they cannot give us meaning. If we don't see it and appreciate it as a gift from God, then it's all the more just vapor and empty. So what's the ultimate question for us? Well, despite present appearances to the contrary... And some of you may be feeling those in a fallen world. God is going to return 
and make all things right and all things new. He will judge the earth. At the very close, our, our duty at the, at the end of it all, to sum it all up, he says in chapter 12, what should we do? We should fear God and obey his commandments. That's, that's real life. My pastor in grad school, a guy named Mike Malone, wonderful man and preacher, he used to say, there's three things that I really need to get down And all of us would be wise to follow in these realities. Number one, God is God. Number two, I am not. Number three, sin confuses the first two. God is God, I am not, and sin confuses the first two. Do you, and I mean you, you personally, individually, do you believe and trust That God is God. The sovereign God. Ecclesiastes is going to press us to see the sovereign control of God, even in the face of hardship. Do you believe that all of the questions of life will ultimately be answered with and in God someday? Because the prospect of despair or denial is not good. Are you thinking life is meaningless because you cannot control it? It's a vapor. You cannot control your life. You cannot control your health. You cannot control your finances. You can't keep your children safe all the time. You can't guarantee any of those things. Jesus says, who by worrying can add a single hour or day to his life or her life. Not possible. So where are you on this journey, this understanding of life and its meaning? Where are you today? Are you in the wilderness? Are you in the valley? Are you on the mountaintop? Nah, that's that's not really the question because you're going to be in all of those places. (laughs) You will be. You have been. The most important thing is are you centered on God or are you centered on yourself? And there is no alternative. There is no in-between. And where are you going? Honestly, the trajectory of your life, I'm not talking about just where you're located, but where is your destination? Because good navigation includes our location, but it also includes a focal point. What and where are you living for? The things of God or the things of self? Or are you chasing after the wind? If you get lost in the wilderness, this is you know, going back to when the days of no, no GPS, what did you have to do? You had to look up and see the sun, which rises in the east and sets in the west. Do you genuinely know God and fear the Lord, Yahweh? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I ask you today, maybe you should ask God today. Lord, God, am I dealing with you and life and sin lightly? I have too low a view of you. Teach me, God, to fear you. You don't need a PhD 
in child psychology to talk about the troubling effects that children have when a father is absent. When they don't know or trust the father. But how much more than if we don't know God as our father and we cannot and do not call out to him, Abba, Daddy, with an understanding of his character that shows it and references the knowledge of his grace and his love that invites us to trust him wholeheartedly. Honestly, do you hunger for wisdom? Wisdom that you know deep down inside is outside of you. Wisdom from above. Well, then hear this invitation to take, my friends, today, and I'm getting close to finished, your life, your goals, your ambitions, your suffering, your sin, your failures, and turn it over to him who Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 32, says this. When he reflects on the promises of a new covenant, he says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may turn, they may not turn from me. How and why is that possible? Except that there is a mediator of the new covenant, and he is the God man. His name is Jesus. The eternal Son of God has taken on flesh and has entered into the trials and the tribulations of life under the sun, S-U-N, sun. He knows that it's a vapor. Jesus is fully, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows that it's like a vapor, shifting. He knows the painful headaches and heartaches of life. And Jesus said that the knowledge of man's misery is pretty obvious, but the knowledge of God is eternal life. That's, 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 that's a knowledge that's relational. To, to know God, to know his son Jesus. We studied it in Luke uh, a few months ago, back in Luke chapter 11. Jesus said that there is someone who has come who is greater than the wisdom of all of Solomon. And wouldn't he be arrogant if he wasn't true? If he wasn't the God-man? But Jesus is the greater wisdom. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to us with his pierced hands inside? Except, come, because there is water and bread and life and light and rest with me that does not disappoint. That we might believe that. Only he can truly satisfy us. I need, we need the eyes of faith to see these things, don't we? It's, it just gets so obscured. And I know, I know, I know that the, the, the fleeting and, and, and troubling nature of the world can obscure that. 
Let's pray that God would give us faith, that we might see it and appreciate it.